Um, I hope that, that you feel the same way as, as I do, because uh, God is at work. And when God is in, at work, um, especially because um, the more that you get to know the people here, everybody drives a long way. So they don't necessarily have to choose, but they don't have to come here because they want to. They choose to be here because of the proclamation of the word and the power of the gospel that is being proclaimed. And so I'm always thrilled. And so if you're here for, for the first time, we just want to welcome you and make sure that you get a visitor's pack and sort of um, sign up things. And that's another thing uh, that I'm excited about is because being the new guy still, um, I'm always knowing names and keeping up with uh, the new people coming in and knowing their names and the people who've been here if I look lost sometimes, uh, it's just me because, yeah. And so I'm, I'm trying, but it's, it's exciting because uh, uh, when the Holy Spirit uh, moves within God's people, it's great to see how God is accomplishing his will with his people. And so um, God has given me the opportunity to come and to open the word today. And so uh, we... We come to um, a very familiar story, but yet at the same time, one in, in which um, has been amazing to me because uh, the more I got into it, the, the more profound and the more it affected me. And so let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we come to the word. Father, we thank you that not only you have revealed yourself to mankind to disclose to us as much as man can know, but you give us the opportunity to open his pages every day to be amazed by you, for we can learn who you are. We can learn how our lives are to be affected by you. And then we also learn as called out ones, ones in which we can proclaim that glorious message of the gospel to those who are lost for it is the life-changing power that, that you have in the gospel that can make the most wretched of, of sinners come to faith and be made new. And so we ask the Spirit of God to speak to our hearts, to give us ears to hear and eyes to see, so that when we leave this place, our lives have been changed through our time in your word. And so we thank you, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last time that I preached, I told you that we were punting last time because I was going through football withdrawals and I came up with a football metaphor which sort of fits. Last time I preached, we punted the ball with three minutes left in the game and we wanted the ball deeper in uh, our opponent's uh, field so that when the offense would come back on, we would have better field position. And so Tom Brady is ready to come onto the field, or don't want to trigger anyone. Joe Montana is ready to come onto the field, because he doesn't trigger anyone, ready to throw the ball to Jerry Rice to achieve uh, the game-winning touchdown. And so that's what we had to do last time, because when I've preached this, uh, this section before, I went from chapter uh, 37, basically, where Joseph gets thrown in, into a pit, and then immediately jumped to chapter 50. 
to show that God is providentially working in the lives of his people. But it's amazing because as I was going through things, the rest of those chapters that sort of come in between, they were calling to me. And for us to have an understanding of what God is working in the life of Joseph, we had to punt a ball to sort of explain to you that how, how the book of Genesis is put together is key, and you need to know that. For then when you come to the interpretation of what is going on in Joseph's life, it all makes sense. And so last time that we said you needed to know the, in, um, the internal divisions of the book. And so the book of Genesis is, is really divided up into 11 sections of these are the generations of, or, we, uh, or the Hebrew word is the toledoth. And so we are now in this section in Genesis chapter 40 in the generations of Jacob. And it's looking at Jacob's life and how God is working through the life of Jacob. And in the middle of his story is all these chapters about Joseph. And so to get a proper interpretation of what is going on, you needed to know that this is really about Jacob and God using Joseph to affect his life and his direction. And so... It's the last one of these generations of because the people will eventually wind up in Egypt as a large family to become the nation of Israel. You don't need any more generations of when the nation of Israel is formed. We also said to get a proper understanding of the book of Genesis, you need to know the three themes that are found throughout the book. Understanding these things helps you properly interpret what is going on. Because there are times where we, when we come to the Old Testament, we look at the Old Testament as a set of random stories that are just there to, to give us good life lessons for us to continue. And though we can um, learn a lot of moral aspects through those stories, that's really not why they're given to us. Like we said last time in Genesis chapter 37, um, well, 39, it's there more than just for sexual purity in the life of Joseph, but it is there to get Joseph into prison. That's why it's there. And so you need to know that the three themes throughout the book help us, gives us a proper understanding of how to interpret what is going on. And so when you get to see that God is providentially at work, it's more than just something marvelous. But when you get to see the uh, richness in understanding God's providence, it's far more thorough and it's far more marvelous than I had ever seen before. And so you need to know what the three, things, the three themes are. And we saw that that is found in the Abrahamic covenant beginning back in Genesis chapter 12. And we said the land the seed, and the blessing that God gave Abraham promises to where they would be fulfilled through the land, through the seed, and through the blessing. And each time the Abrahamic covenant um, is repeated, it's sort of expanded um, upon. And for just our remembrance, go to Genesis chapter 17, if you would. This is where 
in, in Genesis chapter 17, where God is going to ratify the covenant with himself. But I just want you to see these three themes being repeated throughout the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 17. Because these things not only are unconditional promises independent on Abraham's response, but these are promises that God guarantees that he will work in the life of Abraham and then his people. Look at, at verse 1 of Genesis chapter 17. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. And check out all these I wills that God promises to do. I will establish my covenant between you and me. I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, And as for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. That's us. That's Gentiles. That's how I get into God's family, through the blessing through, through Abraham. No longer shall your name be Abraham, but your name shall be uh, uh, Abram. You shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of multiple nations. Verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your, and I'm going to use the Hebrew word for here, it's seed. It means descendants, but it's the singular, which is significant, which we'll talk later down the line. Your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. I will give, you, um, give it to you and your seed after you, the lands of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, I will be their God. There's blessing, exceedingly blessing. There's covenant with that blessing. There's seed um, through the many nations, but also the promised seed that is going to be coming out is uh, part of that. And then there's the land. There's blessing, there's seed, there's land. All of this God promised to Abraham. What did he promise him? Everything. What did Abraham do to earn it? He did nothing. And so God makes a promise to Abraham. And why Abraham? Well, Deuteronomy 7, 7, just because. He chose him and his people just because he loved him. And so he believed and was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so that, those three themes, the land, the seed, the blessings, are found throughout the book. And especially when we begin to get to chapter 41, it begins to make sense. We begin to see these three th themes. And so in chapter 40, as we're going to be looking at today... Joseph, as we find, is now in prison. And these three things begin to make, um, uh, make its appearance once again. 
But as we turn to chapter 40, I want you to look at, uh, at the end of chapter 39 to give us the context here. Because it's right after Potiphar's wife's situation to where Potiphar is angry, probably not his wife too, but um, angry at Joseph. And he's going to, instead of kill him for one who is accused of attempted rape, he throws him into prison. Not just any prison, but in the king's prison. God is providentially at work in the life of Joseph. Why? Well, we're going to see. Look at verse 19. And when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in jail. Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And did and uh, whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Verse 23, tuck back in your mind for this week and for the two following weeks. Because the Lord is there, the Lord is at work in Joseph's life because the Lord was with him. And so um, Joseph is, is in prison as chapter 40 begins to unfold. Joseph is now 28 years old. There's a timeline throughout Joseph's life that gives us an understanding that we'll talk more about next time because this, this timeline is very important. It's been 11 years since he's seen his family, since his brother thought about killing him, instead sold him into slavery. And so almost half of his life, he hasn't seen them. His life has not been anything that he could have ever imagined it would turn out to be. Because for most of us, when we're young and chipper, uh, we make life plans. We want to do such and such. We want to go to school and get this trade. We want to then find a wife and then have kids and buy a home and then uh, prosper in whatever that we do. These are goals that we want to accomplish. And for Joseph, I'm sure he had similar goals. Similar things to where he wanted to accomplish and where he saw himself later on in life. But for Joseph, he's in prison. Everything for the last 11 years has been contrary to anything he could ever thought about or planned on before. Every aspiration that he has ever had has gone up in smoke. And so now when he looks at his life, he doesn't know where it's going to go. All he saw was dark clouds, bleakness, dreariness, because he's in prison. Psalm 105 talks about that when he got to prison, he was in chains. He had a chain around his neck, and he was, he was chained in. But God was with Joseph. And as he looked at his life, he could see that at one time... He was with his family. He was recognized by his father, given a special Palm Lake 
a multicolored coat which set him apart from his brothers, given a dream, and then from that point he's as far as, as way as he thought his dream would take him. He is down in prison. And so all of his life changed was when he had the two dreams. And those pair of dreams are significant. We'll talk more about that next time because they are very significant. He just didn't have one dream, he had two. Why is that important? Well, you got to come next week. And so basically, when he told his brothers about the dream, they hated him for it. When he told his brothers and his father about the second dream, his father uh, rebuked him, and then his brothers despised him. Basically, their actions were, were that we will never bow before you, Joseph. Who do you think you are? This 17-year-old telling his older brothers, who were grown men at this time, because there's a time gap between, between the brothers, they're grown men. Who do you think, what kind of ego do you think you have, thinking that we will bow and you before you and you will rule over us? And so his brothers betray him, throw him into a pit, sell him into slavery. He's bought by Potiphar in Egypt, falsely accused of rape, and now he finds himself in prison after doing nothing wrong. You talk about how your hardships are difficult. <laughs> those, hard, those are hardships. That, those are tribulations of the nth degree. And so during all this time, Joseph is not told the why behind it. He's only experienced one hardship, one disappointment, one trial, one affliction, one after another and after another, to a place to where he really doesn't see the Lord working all that much. He could have felt like the person in the Beatles song, Nowhere Man. I probably listened to too much Alistair Begg, but sorry. Uh, in, in that song, it says... He's a real nowhere man, sitting in his nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for nobody. He may have felt that way. Where am I going? I'm not going anywhere. I'm in prison with no hope of ever being released because he's a slave. And so I'm sure you like myself, have, have felt that way at one point or another in your life. Because we know that God is at work in our life, but yet at the same time there's hardship, there's difficulty, there's trials, there's conflict. And it feels like that we, when we do take two steps forward, it's like four steps backward at the same time. And we feel like we're spinning our wheels. We set up plans and expectations and we try to achieve something and it feels like we're not getting anywhere. And so the dark clouds of despair can sort of move in. Um, there's um, all kinds of uh, heaviness that can blind our eyes. 
And so when it comes to verses found like in James chapter 1 where it says, consider it all joy when you experience or encounter various multicolored trials. How can I experience joy when these trials are heavy? They're hard. And it almost seems like the Lord doesn't hear me to answer my affliction. That is where Joseph is at or could be feeling heavily. But in a lot of ways, he doesn't. And that's what we're going to be looking at. And it centers around enduring the hardships, enduring the trials, enduring the, um, to endure the affliction is understanding at its core the providential workings of God in your life. That God is at work. And we cling to that hope. And we may not know why we're going through certain things, but we cling to the Lord that these things are there for our good. Doubt me about things? What happens when your car breaks down? Not again. Because it seems like no matter when my car breaks down, it's $600. $600. Break down. Take my money. You know, uh, the easy come, easy go. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Does the Lord mind just take it? You know, Lord, why? I, I, why? Why aren't I getting ahead? I don't want the stimulus. I, I just want to get ahead on my own. You know. And it just seems like it, it just goes. But the Lord is there, and he's there for a reason. There's something happening in Joseph's life, and even though its directions may seem contradictory to us, it's not contradictory to the Lord. He has had dreams of exaltation, and now he's in the despair of prison. And it's interesting because we're looking at the, the providence of God, but I never really defined it for you. And so a simple definition of the providence of God is God working in, in life around us. God is at work in the life around us. He's working in my life. He's working in your life. He's at work. That is the providential working of God in the events of our life. Well, let me go one step further. There's a difference between providence of God and a miracle of God. There's providence and there's a miracle. Providence of God is God working within the laws of nature. God works, but he doesn't break the laws of nature. A miracle is God working outside of the laws of nature. That's why it's a miracle. And so in a recent me message by John MacArthur, he talks about God's providence and I feel guilty from, the, from the Pastor Joey not being here, so there may be a quote coming up. Um, but he said this about God's providence. God is at work in everything, and nothing happens outside of his will. Everything that occurs is within the framework of God's purposes to accomplish his own ends. A miracle is when God suspends natural law and injects something supernatural. Providence is when God takes all kinds of natural things, millions of them, disconnected events, and pulls them all together to create exactly what he wants without violation of natural law or human action. This is a greater miracle than a miracle. 
for God to stop the natural flow and inject supernatural thing is a one-dimensional act on God's part. For God to have caused his own will to be accomplished as a result of millions of independent contingencies is a miracle beyond comprehension. But that is exactly how he operates the entire universe. Every event that happens, God is at work in your life. So when your car breaks down and you want to kick the tire and now your leg hurts, it shouldn't have done that, um, but God is, God is at work. And so every event has a purpose. Even those difficult events especially, God is at work to change you. And so when, when there is conflict within the marriage, whether it's something um, with our children, whether it's an issue at work, it is there that God is at work for us to trust him and have him change us. And so it doesn't matter whether, whether we um, see it or we f- refuse to acknowledge it, God is at work. And this story in Genesis chapter 40 is a great reminder that God is providentially at work despite the circumstances that Joseph finds himself. And so we're going to be going through Genesis chapter 40. And I, as I come to this one passage, I try to think about some big sophisticated uh, breakdown of the book. And I came up with uh, two men, two dreams, four results. And so I hope I don't make my um, hermeneutics teacher mad, but that's just what it is. There are two men, there are two dreams, but out of this, there are four results. So let's go through the uh, chapter to see how God is at work in Joseph's life. The two men are found in verses 1 through 4. Genesis chapter 40 says this, Then it came about, after these things... The cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. So in these opening verses, we find that there are two main players and that they're just not any prisoners. They're part of the royal, um, um, the royal's um, officials that are always around Pharaoh. The one's a cupbearer, which means he's a food taster and presenter of the food to the king. And so his job was to uh, bring the king his food, but also to taste the food. In case there was poison, he would, king would, uh, the king would know. Pharaoh would know if the food was poison because he's laying on the ground. And so he's the cupbearer. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to, um, um, to the king of um, uh, Persia. But there's also uh, the baker. He's the food preparer. And so there's a chief cupbearer and a chief baker. And it's interesting because for, for his two main people that are always around him, he became furious. That means to provoke to wrath. And that's a great translation of the Hebrew word here. He just wasn't angry at them. He was furious at them. 
And we're not really told why he, was, he offended Pharaoh. It could be Pharaoh, he asked for Hassan Pfeffer, and he didn't get it. So off to the brig. I asked for it, you bring it. Yes, that was a Bugs Bunny reference, I'm sorry. Or maybe they brought him Brussels sprouts, and he doesn't eat little green golf balls. Don't pass go, don't collect $200 off to jail. It could be because the, um, the king or the pharaoh would always be under threat of somebody opposing him. And so there could have been some kind of uprising, something going on, and he couldn't uh, nail down who was guilty, and so he just throws the, his two chief people into prison. That could be more, more like it. But despite the actual reason, his two top people, his cupbearer and his baker, they find themselves in prison for an indefinite period of time. Look at verse 4. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them. And that's key. If there was a need, Joseph was in charge, and he provided for them. And they were in confinement for some time. And so we're not told how long the some time was. Normally when days pass, you know, you begin to count off the days, but somewhere along the line you begin to lose track. And a few days turn into a number of days. And so we don't know, but um, Joseph is in charge of them and they're together for a while. So those are the two men. And so, in verses 5 and 6, there are now two dreams. Look at verse 5. Then the cupbearer, the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream, and each dream with his own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. And so now there are two dreams that are on the scene. Joseph with his brothers, there were two dreams. And now there are two dreams. And with Pharaoh, there's going to be two dreams. But you're going to have to wait till when? Next time. But that is significant. And so there are, each one had their own dream, but the difference is they, each one had their own interpretation. Each dream was different. And Joseph was with his brothers before, two different dreams, but same interpretation. And so now there are two dreams here. And they both had a dream, and when it came to morning, they were disturbed to their core. It wasn't like it was a normal dream. It was something that disturbed them to where it shone on their faces that there was something weighing heavy on their shoulders. It bothered them. They lived in a culture in which dreams could be interpreted, and they were there, they had this dream, there was no one in prison to give them an answer. And so they had a dream. Now it's interesting because when you look at the concept of dreams in Scripture, dreams are actually a rare occurrence. It, to most people, you, we think that a, a dream and God speaking through a dream happens all the time. Well, and actually in all the thousands of years in which the Bible was written, there are only three prominent places where dreams uh, occur. In the Old Testament, it's the book of Genesis and the book of Daniel. In the New Testament, there are six dreams that are found in the book of Matthew, 
when John sees the vision of, the, uh, of Christ, that was, a, um, that was a vision. He wasn't asleep. He was awake, and he sees everything. That's, that's different. But here we have a dream by God to where God is revealing um, information, and it is through a dream. And so a dream has taken place. And it's interesting because I firmly believe that when the canon became complete, when the Bible became complete, there was no other need for God to reveal himself in dreams or in visions or any other way because of the sufficiency of the word. This is going to be popping up hopefully here. Second uh, Peter chapters, uh, chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4 to where this is a need-to-know verse that you should know. There are a lot of nice-to-know verses, but this is a need-to-know verses that helps us understand the sufficiency, that Scripture is sufficient and we don't need anything else. For here we have Peter telling us, for his divine, divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to what? To life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Through these he granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. And so we have everything that we need for our walk with Christ found in his word. Everything. We don't need anything else because it is through his word we have a true knowledge of him and found there are his precious and magnificent promises. And so when someone says, I had a dream, it's not from God. Why? I don't need anything else. I don't need any kind of vision. I don't need a dream. We have everything already found. God has revealed himself and preserved his word. And that's all we need. And so when Joseph looked at them, and they both look um, upset, he comes to their, their side. Look at verse 7, back in Genesis chapter 40. He asked Pharaoh's officials, who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? And they said to him, we had a dream. There's no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. We see Joseph's faith here is at work. Because for the two officials, they believe in a lot of gods, the Egyptian gods. There were gods all over the place. Pharaoh was a god. And so, but, but then they understand that he's different from them. He's a Hebrew. And Joseph is telling them that when you look at interpretations, they belong to God. And he's implying, I know God. Tell me, and God will reveal to me what your dream is. Joseph knew about God revealing himself in dreams. And it's interesting because here we have the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew word um, Elohim, which means the supreme or mighty one. And Joseph is, is implying that I know the supreme mighty one. Tell me, and God will tell you what your dream means. 
And so he is say, he's stating that the interpretation was, didn't originate with him. It comes from God himself. And so Joseph has had dreams before. They were the element that started his entire hardship. But yet, as we shall see, they, he, he uses that ability to interpret dreams to come alongside them. And so in verse 9, we find the first dream. Nothing complicated, but they had no clue on what it meant. And so in verse 9, we see the dream of the cupbearer. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine there were three branches, and it was budding, and its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced uh, ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes, and I squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. That's it. And so there's a vine. From the vine, there's three branches. The branches uh, budded. They blossomed. They produced grapes. That's the picture. And so verse 12, Joseph said, ah, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are in three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. And so the interpretation was, you are going to have your job back. You're going to be elevated and exalted again to chief cupbearer. And so that's the interpretation. And it's interesting, in verses 14 and 15, Joseph adds a request because he knows that God is revealing himself. Because you're going to be lifted up again, I want you to do something for me. Verse 14, only keep me in mind when it goes well with you. Please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. That's important. He's identifying himself with um, his family community. But we'll see more about that next week. And even here, I have done nothing that they should have put me into prison. So he's telling the chief cupbearer, remember me. Tell Pharaoh I'm here unjustly. And so some commentators actually think, well, Joseph was trying to bring about a change in his situation on the human realm. Well, I don't quite consider that. I think Joseph was looking at that this is, an, this is the opportunity that God is going to use his chief cupbearer to get me out of here. So God's at work. Remember me when you go. And so there's a fine line between depending upon your own initiatives versus letting God and trusting God to bring circumstances about. And that line moves all the time. But Joseph was confident to where, you know, tell Pharaoh and, and get me out of here. And so he's asking the cupbearer to um, tell Pharaoh that he was falsely accused. And so now in verse 16, we have the second dream. The chief baker, he hears this and he goes, me next, me next, hear my dream. He liked that outcome. 
In verse 16, and when chief cupbearer saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And on top of the baskets, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. And the birds were eating out of them, out of the basket on my head. And so the picture was, he had three baskets. They contained food for, for Pharaoh, but the birds kept eating the food intended for Pharaoh. The picture was innocent enough, but it probably explains um, his past intentions because through the interpretation we, we find in verse 18, and Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation. This one is not favorable at all. Three baskets are three days, so the same time period. One will get exalted, and the other one, well, within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your your flesh off you. (laughs) Not a pretty picture at all. Within, th- within three days, the cupbearer will be exalted, and within three days, you will be dead. And r- remember, Joseph is implying here, this is, this is not me saying this. The, and he's not predicting the future. God is revealing himself on what is going to transpire. And so God is in these dreams because God is with Joseph. And so those were the dreams. And from the dreams, in verses 20 through 23, there are four results. And so the men had to wait, and he had to wait for three days to find out how good his interpretations were going to be. Because the men didn't know. Joseph knew that God was at work, but the men didn't know. And so far, we get to see um, result number one was for the cupbearer. Thus it came about on the third day. Ho, ho, it's Pharaoh's birthday. And he made a feast for all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. So, he, so Pharaoh wants everyone to come. So he calls his two men out of prison and he gathers them together. Verse 21, and he restores the chief cupbearer to his office. And he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. So for the result of the cupbearer, 100% accurate. Good thing. But there were two different dreams with two different interpretations. So Joseph is not off the hook yet that he has the ability to interpret dreams. Look at verse 22, result number two, the baker. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. And so it's probably in in, uh, inference that he was actually guilty of whatever made Pharaoh furious. Don't serve Brussels sprouts is the response. So Joseph is 100% accurate with two different people, two different interpretations, with two different outcomes. He's 100% error-free. And so those are two different results. But yet there are two more results that sort of um, come. One is directly on the page, and the other one is inferred. Look at verse 23. 
Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. The third result was with Joseph. Did his situation change? No. He is still in prison. Joseph's there, waiting three days. He, word comes that he is 100% accurate. Yes, any moment now. They're coming for me to get me out of here. Day goes by. Two days go by. A week goes by. A month goes by. Any day now, I will get out of here. And nothing happens. Two possibilities, I think, on why the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. Option number one, chief cupbearer didn't deliberately forget Joseph, but he got busy doing all of the normal things he would normally do. As you, as, as you yourself know, when you go to work, you just get busy and a hubbub and everything else going on. So there's some small details that you may forget that you may come back to. I should have done that about, about a couple weeks ago. Maybe he was just too busy. The other one was, um, is that out of sight, out of mind. That Hebrew, he's there, I'm thankful, but that's it. And so no matter what it may be, Joseph got forgotten. Pretty bad result. Joseph had hopes of being liberated, and his hopes got dashed. Essentially, they get dashed for another two years, as the next chapter will point out. Two years of unanswered prayer, unanswered expectations. When we have hardship after a week, we're like, we're like crying to everybody. Well, when we're going on here? You know, has God forgotten me? But yet there's a fourth result. It goes back to um, verse 23 of chapter 39. The third result is with God. The Lord was with what? Joseph. The result is that God was at work still that he wasn't finished with Joseph. There's an old English proverb that says, cometh the hour, cometh the man. Joseph's hour had not yet come. God was not finished with Joseph yet to prepare him for the proper hour. The man wasn't ready, and God still had to mold the man. And there are at least three reasons, I, I think, why God is allowing this misfortune to happen to Joseph. I'm sure there could be more, but three things that I just want to uh, bring to your mind this morning. The first of all is that God is continu continuing to build Joseph's character. At the beginning of chapter 37, Joseph was only 17 years old. And we saw from there, and then when he went into Potiphar's house, that he was an unusually gifted and talented individual. So much so that he had great administrative skills that he was put in charge of everything for Potiphar. Potiphar didn't have to worry about one thing about what was going on with his household. 
He assisted his father Jacob with the oversight of all his possessions. Because as his story opens up, his father is sending him to get a report on how his brothers were doing. Why? Because he was in charge of everything going on with, for his, for, with his father. And so when chapter 39 begins to open up at Potiphar's house, we begin to see that he had great talent, great um, ability, and he probably had a very winsome personality. Because out of all of the slave, he rose to the top. And so he was put in charge of everything. When he was in prison, he rose to the top of being in prison to where he was in charge of all the goings-on within, within the prison. And so he was very gifted in his skills, very talented. But God isn't only interested in Joseph's natural abilities. God is also concerned with producing the right character within Joseph. They're not the same thing. Giftedness is not the same thing as character. For when we first see Joseph, look at um, Genesis chapter 37, if you would. When we first see Joseph, he's a gifted young man, but in his explanation of the dreams to his brother, he sort of comes across a little insensitive because he just doesn't state the dream. He states the dream and the interpretation together, and it sort of seems like he has a very large ego and so he comes across very insensitive and his lacking a depth of discernment look at uh, verse 5 of Genesis 37 look how he sort of describes this, this dream to his brothers Joseph had a dream he tells it to his brothers they hated him even more verse 8 uh, verse 6 he says to them please listen to this dream which I have he was insistent for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf stood up and also remained standing. And behold, your sheaf gathered around and bowed to my sheaf. And so it's, it's how he communicated it. He was a little inset. He, he, was, he was right. It was just he could have maybe done it uh, another way. Then in verse 8, when he goes to his brothers and, and his father about the second dream, well, in verse 8, are you actually going to reign over us, his brothers say? Are you actually going to rule over us? And so they're implying we're never, we're never going to bow to you, Joseph. And then in verse 9, then he had another dream. Oh, um, look at the end of verse 8, excuse me. Um, so they hated him even more for his dreams, and his words. So he, Joseph never quite attached it to God working, but we'll talk more about that next, next week when we have Pharaoh's dreams. Verse 9, the second dream. He had another dream, informed his brothers, and said, And behold, I had another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing to me. Very emphatic there. They're bowing to me. And his brothers just sort of lose it. They, they, they're more than angry. They're jealous. And they begin to plot to kill him, to get rid of him, take him out of the picture. And so God is preparing Joseph during his time, being away from his family, not just to adapt his administrative skills, which he's going to need beginning in the next chapter when he becomes prime minister of all Egypt, 
but also the character that is going to be needed to rule over the people on, on behalf of Pharaoh. Because famine is coming. Seven years of potential starvation is going to sweep over the land. And so God is going to tell through Joseph that there needs to be time of preparation. There's going to be seven years of great abundance to prepare for it. But then the severity of the famine is, is overwhelming. And one needs to have the proper administrative skills and restraint to endure those seven years. And so it's very easy to lead in times of abundance because people can trust their leaders in time of great abundance. But when times get hard, that's difficult because one still has to convey a confidence that they can continue to trust their leadership even in times of great decline. And so God is preparing Joseph to endure great strains and difficulties that lay in front of him on behalf of Pharaoh. And so if he didn't have the proper character, thousands of lives could die of starvation. And so through, during this time, he continues to mold Joseph. Joseph wanted out, which was fine, but God's timing wasn't right for it. But it will come. And so it is through this timing, character traits were, were getting honed. Take the aspect of patience. We always say, I need to be more patient. So how does God teach us patience? During times of affliction. During times of trial. You don't learn patience from a book. You learn them from adversity and times of disappointment. But God never accomplishes his purposes in us without those times. Look at Romans chapter 5 for, for a moment. I just want to show you this. Because Paul expresses this very same thought. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 3, there's not a slide for it, sorry, I added it in the last minute. Romans chapter 5 and verse 3, it, it says this. And not only this, but Paul and Paul's companions, but we also celebrate our tribulations. So Paul's hardships, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Our hardship produces the ability to learn perseverance. How can we push through the hard times when they come? Well, it's through the past hardships that we've gone through. God's at work. How do we get proven character? Well, it's through the trials that God's honing in those things. And, we, and it yields a steadfast hope. And so these are character traits that are only learned through adversity. So when the hour cometh, we are in the proper place where God wants us to be, to be fully used by him. So not only is God working to build Joseph's character, but secondly, God is working to build Joseph's service. Joseph could have said when 
the two men in the cell said, I had a dream. Joseph could have said, I know about dreams. I'm done with telling dreams. It, dreams got me here. I'm done with it. You, but he didn't say that. He came alongside those who are hurting and to say, God could use me to help you understand your dream. And so to Joseph's brothers, they saw Joseph's interpretation of the dream as they belonged to him. Now, Joseph sighs when he comes to the two people. They're off of himself, and they're on God. Only God can give, them, give meaning to dreams. And so Joseph is there, ready to be used by God in acts of service. It's those one another's that Paul talks about. Being there to come alongside of someone hurting, to give someone else guidance that, when it's needed. And so he rose up that morning, and he saw the long, long faces, and he said, what's wrong? And so he is now the 28-year-old, and not the 17-year-old. And so he is there to be used by God. He said, God is the one at work. He gets all the credit. It's not me and my ability. So at 17, Joseph sees himself as the leader. But by the time now, at 28, he sees himself as a servant. So as chapter 41 becomes, his service is already to be used by God. And so God is at work building Joseph's service. But thirdly, God is teaching Joseph to continually trust him despite his present circumstance. The chapter, um, Joseph's hopes have been dashed as the chapter closes here because he has been forgotten. But God is there teaching him. Even though he has forgotten you, there's been no word, there's been nothing. There hasn't even been a trickle down saying he brought it before Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, ah, there's nothing. He's long gone out of his mind. But at the heart of things, God is teaching him that God did not forget him. And that's the hardest, one of the hardest lessons to learn. Because we know, you know, Romans 8.28, for God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. We know that verse. That's hard to live that verse when you're in the midst of a heaviness, when you're in the midst of not knowing where to turn, when you're in the midst of the dark clouds seem to be just overwhelming you, God has not forgotten you. Though Psalm 23 wasn't written yet, Joseph was learning its very message because in, in verse 4 it says this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I could be in the most darkest of times, but the Lord is there. And the Lord was with him. He will never forget you. That's why Paul says we can cry out, Abba, Father, 
you know, Daddy, because we are his adopted child, he will never forget us. Let me read for you another great verse. It's found in Deuteronomy 31 in verse 6. Deuteronomy 31, 6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or in dread of them, for the Lord your God is the one who is going with you. He will not desert you or abandon you. It's a dark time. Don't fear. The Lord is with you. You. We all go through very difficult times. I am, I am one of them. <laughs> there's, there's so much going on at, at times, things can be overwhelming. Life event changes when you have small children, they become older children, um, different job um, situations sort of change, but God is at work. There are times to where whether or not their health issues sort of can arise. Financial issues definitely always arise. Um, there's occupational issues. People aren't guaranteed a, a one job for a, uh, for a full life. Some people have to go back to school and learn another um, occupation. There's no guarantees at all. But there's one thing that we can cling to. God is with us. God is providentially at work in us to mold us, to shape us, to always be there, and he will never forget us. One last set of, of verses before we come to the, the table. Go in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 3, if you would. Philippians chapter 4 typo in my notes. Shame on me. Paul understood the good times and bad times and realized that God was there. But the thing that he learned here within this one context is contentment. Paul learned contentment. So that by the time you get to verse 13, it makes a whole lot more sense than, than what, on how it's used out there. Verse 10, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked an opportunity to act. Not that I speak from need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with little, and I know how to, get, how to live in prosperity or in any in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry and having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He learned contentment so that no matter what that situation comes, he, know that, he knew that Christ was there. And so God is providentially working in Joseph's life. When Joseph was on his, on his way to his brothers, God had the pit in mind. When he was in the pit, God had Potiphar in mind. When he was with Potiphar, God had prison in mind. And when he was in prison, God had Pharaoh in mind. But yet through it all, 
God had the salvation of his people in mind. There was a far bigger picture than just Joseph, as we shall see unfold in the remaining chapters. So I don't know your current situation, but we all have them. We can all sort of probably raise a hand. It's there all the time. It's heavy. But yet God is with you. He is providentially at work. You may be there this morning to where you're just angry at God. Why? Why is God allowing all this to happen in my life? Because you have never come to the cross. And the question arises, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? And most people would say, I hope that, um, that I have eternal life. And then the next question arises, why? Why would God let you into his heaven? Why? Well, I've gone to church. I've given to church. I helped those in need. I've even worked in soup kitchens. And Christ would say, I never knew you because you never saw yourself as a sinner needing a savior. That you never saw your complete inability to come before God with empty hands. You tried to work your way into heaven. But the gospel is there because we were unable to do anything, to merit anything before God. And so if you're angry at God, just wondering, what is my life going? You first need to come to Christ. He is the one that gives direction. He is the one to sort of take all the guilt and the shame that our life has and take it because he paid for it upon the cross. All your sins, your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins died with him. But for those who know Christ, cling to him. He is saying there in the tough time, when your marriage is tough, trust me. Act like Christ. Don't let your anger fly off the hook. When you're wondering if you're going to be getting a pink slip, trust him. You may lose your job, but guess what? A new door will open up, one that you never realized before. Trust him. Even when you look down the road, um, I, I look, well, you know, Connecticut is getting way too expensive for me. I'm going to have to move south. Well, who's going to stay in Represent Christ. Trust me. I will provide, uh, you know, when you have to pay those crummy taxes for your house and, every, and everything else. Trust me. It's more than money. Trust him. And so when we come to the table this morning, it is a time of celebration for what Christ has done for us. He will never leave you. He will never forsake his children. And so it's a great picture for us the Sunday after Easter to remember this. And so if you can take a cup this time, we shall partake together. This is a picture of Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection. God poured out his wrath upon his son. And we think that our life's tough and our life should be easy, that we should have a life of health, wealth, and prosperity. But that's not what it is. 
if he crushed his son and was pleased, he is there not to make life hard for us because he's an ogre, but he is there to make life for us, to make us more like his son, to be pleasing for him. And so if you didn't get the elements, just raise your hand and they, they will come about. But this is a picture of his body, his broken body, and his shed blood. And so the night before he died, they were celebrating the Passover Seder. And he took a very familiar set of elements that they knew about, and he likened to what was going to happen to him. And so he took the bread, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's partake together. After that, he took the cup and he shared it with his disciples, likening to that blood needed to be spilled for the forgiveness of sins, that it was a picture of his new covenant. And he passed it around and they partook and he told them to do this in remembrance of me. As John comes forward, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, it's amazing that through a, a simple story that we have, we can cling to the reality and the fact that you will never forsake nor first forget your children. We know that life isn't necessarily always easy. But yet, e even during the dark times, we can still cling to you. To have our strength renewed like eagle's wings, that we can stand firm and strong because of not our own power and not our own abilities, but to the fact that you are providentially working through those hard times. Maybe for right now, but for some future aspect later down the road. So, Father, we thank you that you are dependable. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.